Hi, everyone. My name is Casey Winters, Growth Advisor and Residence at Greylock. At Greylock, we're always trying to learn from practitioners on how to solve real problems for startups. And we like to bring these practitioners into Gray Matter to jam on how to solve these problems so others can learn as well. This week, I'm excited to welcome Andrew Chen, and we're going to talk more in depth about his blog post about how growth is getting harder and some of the reasons why that is. Andrew, welcome, and why don't you introduce yourself? Hey, Casey. Thanks for having me. So I am at Uber right now running the Rider Growth team. And I've been at Uber for about two and change years. But before that, I ended up working in venture capital at More David Al Ventures. Um, I've worked on my own startups, advised a bunch of companies. But one of the things that I've been doing is I've been writing a blog for the last 10 years, which is about growth and metrics and marketing and all that good stuff. Yeah, I think that's a little bit understating it. I'd say it's the <laughs> blog on growth. And it's how a lot of startups or people getting into startups have learned about growth as a concept. You were one of the first bloggers to talk about growth in Silicon Valley. And you've kind of watched growth come from this, you know, very niche thing, only Facebook and a few early stage startups were doing. And now it's kind of gone mainstream. But with that, you've recently blogged that as it's gone mainstream, growth has gotten a lot harder for tech companies. And that's what we want to dig on with you today is how growth has gotten harder, and what should entrepreneurs, product managers, engineers do in this new environment where everyone's getting smarter about growth, the incumbents are getting smarter about growth. It's not just, oh, I'm the only person thinking about this, therefore I win, right? So one of the things that I learned a lot from your blog, you know, working at a non-viral startup at Grubhub was the concept of viral growth. So I'd actually love to start there and just how have you seen viral growth change in the last few years? Has it become saturated? Is it still a viable way for you know startups to break out and become long-term success stories? Yeah, you know, just to your point, I think ten years ago when I arrived in the Bay Area, one of the first things that I noticed was you know this was sort of like golden age, right? Two thousand seven. Yep. You had the Facebook platform coming out. iPhone platform was completely new. There was uh, quite a lot of work still around contact importers for just like websites that was still working, right? And so you have multiple platforms that are kind of firing on all cylinders. You can get in with something that's pretty easy. You know, I think we all remember how the top apps in the app store were, um, you know, flashlight apps, yeah, because because that was like so fun, right, at the time. And so what that means is that for startups that are getting created around that period, that these channels, these platforms are just completely white space and you can just go after. And what that means is initially there's higher response rates because the platforms themselves are growing really fast. That means that you can grow with the platforms. That's awesome as well. And if you fast forward, you know, 10 years, one of the things that um, that I've written about is sort of the law of shitty click-throughs, yep. which is the idea that every channel, every platform, no matter what, has this decay in the responsiveness. So why does it happen? Well, it's because, um, you know, the platform owners often, you know, end up thinking that a lot of this stuff is spam, so they want to get rid of it. There's increased competition. In early days of Facebook ads, really great. If you were a mattress company, you could crush it just on Facebook ads. Oh, there's all so of, many of them. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, there's so many of them. They can replicate your growth strategy. It becomes really competitive. You know, then those advantages go away. And so I think as a entrepreneur, what you're always looking for is you're looking for that opening where you can maybe find a channel that's a little smaller, maybe it's a little bit earlier in its cycle, 
And what that means is that when it's earlier, it's less competitive and you're sort of less weighed down by this law of shitty click-throughs. And so I think what's happened over the last couple of years has been that there's been so much consolidation, especially when it comes to viral growth, where all of a sudden mobile contacts just kind of like they're not working as well as email, you know, sort of contact inviting. There's yep. a bunch of reasons for that. We can get into all of that stuff. But the idea is that it makes virality much harder and more competitive. And what that means is that now longer term, um, it's much harder to break through. So I think there are definitely new interesting channels that are available right now, but there's sort of been this change of guard, I think, especially for consumer mobile products around this area. Yeah, I mean, it's hard for me to think of a company that's broken out recently with like invite-based growth, right? Right. A lot of shitty click-throughs, which is one of my favorite blog posts of yours. It kind of talks about not only that there's this kind of rise and decay over time, but certain channels have a quick rise and a quick death and certain channels like SEO, like had like a 15 year run and and now maybe it's finally on the decline for the emerging company. So it seems like you're saying virals definitely hit like the decay side and maybe it's hitting the decay side pretty hard. I would love to hear from you, like, are there any pivots on that style of growth that you think are earlier in the life cycle or different types of companies that maybe are still able to leverage this if you know you can't do it the way Facebook or Snapchat did it five years ago, yeah. 10 years ago? I think one of the areas that I've become the most excited about as far as viral growth is viral growth in the workplace. Yep. Right? Because I think what we're starting to see is that there are a lot of interesting you know, trends. First of all, the continued adoption of the Google suite and all the Google technologies means that all of a sudden these things like Google Calendar, Gmail within the workplace, even documents. Like if you think about what a, what a document is, a collaboration with all the people who've ever edited and who care about that document are kind of attached to that, right? Yep. And so I think there's a lot of really interesting social graphs that are still yet to be sort of converted into the right product. So I think when you look at that, what that means is bottoms up virality in the workplace using a lot of the techniques that the social apps used. But, you know, in addition, sort of refining it for what you need to do in the workplace, which obviously can't be spammy. It needs to help people actually get their job done, you know, in a collaborative way. I think those are all like really interesting things. So instead of mobile contacts on your phone, you're looking at sort of workplace social graph instead of invites that are like, hey, I want to share photos with you. Instead, it's like, hey, I just created a project and I want to collaborate with you. You have to tweak each of the value propositions. But I think there's a lot that's still left in making this work. Obviously, Dropbox and Slack have done, you know, an awesome job. But I would think a lot about, you know, for anyone that's working on products for work, how do you actually think about what you're doing intrinsically as a collaborative workflow? Yep. And how does one person who starts using the product end up bringing their entire team? And what are the advantages of you know having your whole team on? I think that all, all of that is super interesting. Yeah, what's been interesting with those sorts of companies and, and Slack and Dropbox are certainly great examples of this is traditionally, if you started a company like Slack or Dropbox, one of the things you did very early was you hire a huge enterprise sales team. And in both of these examples, they were able to just create something that people found organically and then have a viral spread within an organization. You know, with Dropbox, it's through documents. And then, of course, on the consumer side, they also had a good viral loop with like Get More Space by Sharing, which was fantastic. And in Slack, it's just a product you have to use with other people. So the admin that creates it is incentivized to, to share it. And 
Slack and Dropbox have created sales teams, but they were able to grow to billion dollar businesses essentially without them. And, you know, those aren't just the only examples. I think, uh, you know, Atlassian was a great example. Twilio grew entirely through like developer evangelism and communication from developers at different companies, which I thought was really interesting. And you can kind of see, if you think about the law of shitty click-throughs, like enterprise sales has had a very long cycle and maybe is starting to end up on the decline of that. And now viral in consumers may be on the down cycle, but actually on B2B, it's on the upswing, which is really interesting to see. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think that's why within a lot of these workplace products, you know, if you just think about the raw number of growth levers that you can work with, it's actually an extremely rich you know, environment because you can do virality, you can do referrals, you can do content marketing, yep. you can do paid acquisition. And then by the way, you can tie all of those loops that you're creating also to sales, right? And to all the traditional channels as well, right? And so I think what that does is the more variables and the sort of more levers that you have, the more likely you are to be able to, to, to come up with a company and an offering that sort of uniquely taps into a certain set of those levers such that it becomes hard to copy, right? Because I think a lot of this comes down to, you know, trying to create these proprietary channels that are like durable and you can like scale over time with them. Yeah. And what's interesting is now that some of those companies have gone into the workplace and have deep penetration, they're actually emerging as platforms for new startups to uh, create value. You know, the Slack platform, I think, is still very early in its life cycle, but I've seen some really interesting growth opportunities there where, you know, if the entire team at a company is already on Slack and your admin just onboards your app onto Slack, you can essentially email like Slack the entire group. That's right. I don't know that that will be the same in five years, but there's an immense amount of freedom to kind of introduce people to your product on top of Slack. And that was a platform that wasn't even available in the workplace you know, right. four years ago. So there's some really exciting stuff there. Another unique one that, that I see at work every day is, uh, you know, at Uber, we use Zoom quite a lot. Oh, right. It's to the point where if your meeting request doesn't have like a Zoom link, the first thing that happens is you get on chat or you hit reply all or whatever, and you're like, Zoom link, Zoom link, Zoom link, right? Yeah. You know, what ends up happening is people expect that Zoom link to live inside of the meeting request. And so I think that's a really interesting, like, I mean, I don't think they fully optimized it, but I think that's an example of something where they're actually kind of building on the workplace calendar as the channel and they could like double down on that. I mean, they have a Chrome extension. They could basically, you know, do a bunch of interesting, you know, or they could make it so you could plug into your calendar and it could basically add Zoom links to like basically every single event like that. I'm sure like we would actually probably do that um, as an example. So I, I think there's a lot of creative things that are yet to be done. Yeah, absolutely. Calendar, I think, is a great example. I think that still hasn't been leveraged a ton. Shifting back to consumer, as we've seen viral loops sort of go away, I think a lot of the emerging stories of consumer success over the last you know, five to seven years have actually moved away from the viral loop, but they've still got a, a level of virality. It's just instead of around a person inviting another person, it's a piece of content that goes and attracts other people. And I know that was certainly how, you know, we grew Pinterest. All of the Pinterest users, you know, they either create content or they bring content in uh, from the rest of the internet and then they share it with a platform and then they frequently share it to Facebook. And in the case of Google, we would actually share it to Google and make sure Google indexed it. And that seems to be a viral-esque channel that isn't as far in the life cycle, these content loops. And Instagram grew entirely off of 
I create a better photo than my phone used to allow and it gets shared to Facebook and Twitter and then people ask why it looks so good and then they get Instagram and of course now Instagram's built its own network on top of that, which is its own platform that potentially is used for growth. I think some more recent examples in our portfolio have been Musically and Medium, where you know Musically was entirely built as a tool so that you could do cool stuff to share to Instagram and Snapchat. And then they just made sure that we got a ton of engagement on Musically as well. So you're like, oh, I should be spending more time on Musically. And you know, they've had a, a very successful exit recently. And they started as an app where you could, you know, easily record yourself with live music um, so to share to these other platforms like Instagram and Snapchat. But then users started seeing more engagement on the Musical.ly feed than they started seeing on Instagram uh, and Snapchat. So then they started spending more time focused on Musical.ly exclusively. And Medium is basically just a tool where you could post stuff and then the entire thing is that like you're going to share it to Twitter and Facebook as soon as you're done. And, and that content you know, has given them hundreds of millions of visitors per month, some of whom end up writing their own stuff. So uh, what are your thoughts on kind of the content loop? Is that peak of the cycle? Is that also on the downswing? Is there still a lot of opportunity left there? How do you see those companies leveraging that working out long term? Yeah, I, I think that's a super nuanced and interesting question, because I think as we're talking about content loops, really, you can kind of divide it into two separate things, right? So one is, there's the actual content creation tools, right? So in the case of Musical.ly or Instagram, having some, you know, kind of really interesting new type of content that's being created, it feels like that can now sit fairly distinctly from the network where it lives, right? And what that means is you can either decide to build your own network as as a new startup, or you can basically try and like leverage some of the networks that exist today with right. the risk that you know, of course, like if you're too popular, maybe some of the networks like decide that they're <laughs> going to like cut off your distribution a little bit. But the part that's so compelling to me from a trend standpoint is that people often talk about the idea that now we live in a world where we're carrying supercomputers in our pocket, which is awesome. But not only that, it's very clear that this is also the ultimate content creation device that's ever been made. Not only does it have camera and you can use your finger and you can type, it also just generates a bunch of like passive information on your location and like what you're doing, et cetera. So as you know, Strava, which is a app that lets you track um, you know, your running and cycling activity, they have a really interesting way of creating content, which is, you know, you're on your bike, you turn on Strava, um, you know, and then you're taking a path uh, while you're cycling. And, and what they do is they have a really awesome way that you can then take that map and you can share it to um, both your Strava feed and you can also share it to Facebook and other social platforms. And, and that is a really cool example of a really unique kind of content that only makes sense on Strava that every time I see it in the Facebook feed, you know, it's because somebody ran like a million miles or whatever, and like everyone gets on it and everyone likes it and comments how awesome it is. And I think that that is something that really can break through the noise because people just naturally respond to it. And so I think what's certainly true is that the, I think the originality of the kinds of content you're going to be able to make and the richness is just going to keep going up, 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 up. I think that's yep. awesome, right? The, the part that I think is going to be tricky and super interesting is going to be that once you create the content, it ends up generating traffic on the next step of the content loop in two ways. One is it gets shared to these other platforms. And like we said, there's sort of risks with that. The other one is when you look at Medium, you look at um, Yelp and Zillow and so on, 
all of that is SEO and you're far more qualified than myself to, to comment on this, but it's something where, you know, SEO is still completely important, viable strategy. But now that we are also now 10 plus years into optimizing SEO, it's not like the most straightforward thing. Like there's the, the number of tricks, quote unquote, that work yeah. is, you know, far, far reduced. So uh, do you have any thoughts on SEO and in, in, in the content loop? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, just stepping back to the beginning of what you were saying is, you have this originality of content that's created and shared to platforms. And you know, I think the SEO is certainly one component of that, but the Facebook platform used to be an amazing platform for that. And with Facebook, that is entirely how Pinterest grew in the early days. It's, we weren't sharing it to Google. It was just good. Every repin was getting shared to Facebook and that was an amazing source of exponential growth. And then it just went away <laughs> uh, kind of overnight. And that was when Pinterest kind of figured out that this content was interesting for people on uh, the Google search engine as well. But these platforms are maybe reacting a little bit quicker and deciding like, do they want to enable the growth of these other startups in a way that I think when we were coming up, we just didn't see them react that way or as aggressively as yeah. they did. I mean, it just felt like, you know, a thousand startups died overnight when Facebook <laughs> changed the platform. Fortunately, Pinterest yes. wasn't one of them, but there were a ton of yeah. others that were. On the SEO side, I think you're starting to see Google act a little bit more like Facebook in the last couple of years. And when you think about Google's strategy recently, I think it's pretty easy to understand. It's how do we, on mobile, where people have less time and they just want to get the thing done, replace 10 blue links that they have to do research on with just the answer or the solution to their problem. And in most cases, they're saying, we could build that solution ourselves. Why do we need to show some other site? And in some areas like local, Yelp has you know, actively said like, hey, this is anti-competitive. We used to show up number one for these queries and now there's just a Google local box in front of us every time. Has that done to work to make sure it's the most relevant result? Probably not. And I think Google's gonna continue to do that category by category that people search the most on and eventually they're gonna try to cover everything. Now, in some case that creates an opportunity for startup because they will buy you to get better at that. But in a lot of times they'll just all of a sudden, oh, Google has a competitive product showing up in front of me on search results. I still think SEO is a channel that a lot of startups can grow on, but I think it used to be, let me just create some great landing pages and have unique content and I'm golding. Now it's, there's a ton of other people that are doing that. And a lot of them have thousands more links than you. So you need to have some sort of competitive advantage on how you're gonna build up the authority so that Google trusts you. Medium, I think has done a good job of that. They entice so much sharing of their content that you know, even though they're a few year old startup, they have the domain authority that rivals people that have been at this for, for 15 years. But if you don't have that sort of way of like, how am I gonna get a lot of links to me quickly? It's just a years long strategy to build up that relevance and authority to actually get meaningful traffic. So for startups, it's not usually the best strategy. If you get some distribution early on, it then can be a strategy to layer on that provides a lot of long-term success. And Pinterest, I think is a great example of that. Facebook growth early on, built up a lot of attention, a lot of press, a lot of links through that. As that waned away, we kind of built SEO to come in as that second acquisition loop. And that's still working pretty well for Pinterest today. When startups come to me and they're saying like, oh, I'm going to grow via SEO. I'm like, have you thought about this? Because like it <laughs> takes years and it's really competitive on almost every query. I think one example where it's not is if the queries you're trying to compete for are things that just started being searched. Yeah. Like if you think about uh, in the early days of like cloud computing, it wasn't like 
Oracle had been ranking for that for 10 years because they didn't know it was a thing, right? So some of those query spaces kind of reset the playing field a bit. A startup can definitely attack that. But if you're saying like, I'm going to go compete for restaurant queries. It's like, good luck. Yelp is there. Grubhub is there. And they're good at this. And they have domain authorities that are insanely high. Yeah. So so maybe to your point then, would you say then that what that means is for a startup that is just getting going, rather than thinking about SEO as kind of your primary thing, because it's going to take a while, it's yeah. slow, right? Instead, you really have to have some other other channel that you're going after in the early years try to use those to kind of get you to scale, whether that's virality or paid marketing or whatever. Yep. And and then use that to sort of like ladder into SEO as kind of like a future channel, right? I think I think that that's usually what I've been telling people, yeah. but you know, tell, tell me. Yeah, what I agree. Think. What I tell a lot of entrepreneurs is there's a Kindle strategy and a fire strategy for distribution. And a lot of times they're very different. I think you hope that they could be just the same thing. And the fire strategy is the expansion of the Kindle strategy. But with SEO, it's hard for SEO to be the Kindle that gets you your early users, but then it can be the thing that scales you to a billion dollar company once you have those early users potentially. And there are some exceptions to that, like Medium, I think has gotten a lot of traffic from Google pretty early on because they were able to spill a lot of excitement early, even without thinking about like, I'm going to completely optimize for SEO. It's not like they built their company around SEO. They just kind of got it for free because they had great content with a lot of links. And I think that would be an interesting thing for us to dig in on a little bit more is if you're an early stage startup versus a a mid or late stage startup or an established company, what are the new kind of Kindle strategies, right? If SEO is not going to be that and viral growth is, especially in consumer, not going to be that, maybe a little bit more viable in B2B, how do you just get those early users? I mean, is is paid acquisition the, the only option left? Yeah, I think what you really have to do in the early years is to find places where your audience lives that really is not that competitive in terms of other players that are going after the same group, right? If you're launching a new product in the cryptocurrency space, like people just announce that stuff on like Reddit, you know, or they just, yep. you know, and end up going, you know, to, to these forums or mailing lists and, and just really going for these like kind of niche audiences, right? And I think, you know, you really have to win with initially these niches and to show that you're able to retain them and then sort of slowly ramp up from there, I think yep. is, is, is the way to go. You can certainly go and like buy traffic, right? In the early years, that's not that's also not a bad way to just, you know, spend 50 bucks or 100 bucks, start getting people on your landing page, start getting some usage. I think the the danger there is to think about that as a somehow scalable thing that you're going to be able to do long term, right? Yep. I think we all love to see the idea that spending money to get acquisition is something that happens as an accelerant yep. to a business that's already working as opposed to something that you're going to make profitable right away. Because I think the reality is that, especially in the early early part of a product, whether you're working on a marketplace or a SaaS product, you know, something that's able to, to monetize um, effectively, yep. that you're just not going to be able to monetize that well in the early years compared to when you're able to fully optimize. So because of that, I think a lot of the traffic buying that you might do early on ends up being something that is more about testing your product as opposed to trying to scale it. Yeah, I think one of the great things about paid acquisition is like, if you have an idea, you want to see if you get product market fit for it, just throw up some AdWords or Facebook ads and you'll see if people click on it, you'll see if they use it. And I think it's been a really great tool for kind of validating products. I like the idea also of 
once you hit product market fit, but you feel like you need to get some sort of liquidity if you're a marketplace, paid can be a just nice starter engine to get that. And maybe that unlocks some SEO distribution or unlocks some referral distribution. Yeah, I don't love it as kind of the core strategy of the business for distribution, uh, even at scale. I mean, and look, certainly some companies have used paid acquisition to grow at scale very successfully, but I would like to see one of those organic loops driving the business. And then, you know, you as the entrepreneur saying, oh, I'm going to throw a million dollars on top of that. So this loop, you know, operates 10% faster. It's going to accelerate this organic loop, but it's not just an arbitrage thing that I'm trying to make sure still is arbitrage 10 years from now. That's right. You know, as Facebook and Google just ratchet up the rates. That's right. You know, another way to say this is that in the early years of a startup, what you're lo- really looking for proprietary kind of early high response channels that you can work with, right? Yep. And it doesn't really matter whether or not they scale. And so what that means is if it's about content marketing, if it's about getting onto other people's blogs, mailing lists, um, you know, Reddit forums, um, you know, all these like little things, they actually do add up. And that's exactly what you want to see in the early years when you're just trying to find product market fit and kind of getting your initial traffic. Now, once that's working, you're retaining people, it's starting to really click. Then I think that's when you start exploring these effectively like non-proprietary channels that anyone can really plug in, but then you need to show that, okay, it's all working in a way that it's going to accelerate everything yep. as opposed to uh, you know trying to tap into those too early. Going back to your thought about niche networks to find that initial audience, I completely agree with that. Do you have any tips and tricks on you know, like, hey, I'm a new startup, I'm doing X, how do I find that niche audience to go after first? And how do I find those networks where they're hanging out that I can actually reach them effectively? You have any kind of thoughts there? Yeah, I think we've all gotten used to the idea that, okay, you know, you start a new business and the first thing is you need some set of hypotheses on what your product is going to do, what kind of value it's going to create. Yep. And I love the idea that in addition to that, you need to sort of, you know, pretty fully bake your initial go-to-market strategy as well. Yep. And make sure that, you know, look, if you if you build something that's like some random photo sharing app where there aren't niche, you know, passionate communities and you have to go right into the morass with like everybody else, it's yeah. like, good luck. You know, like that's just going to be really hard. Obviously, you can try and offer tactically some advice for someone who's in that position. Mm-hmm. But I think that's often why you, you want to go after, um, you know, these things that are segments, for example, hyper-engaged kind of like esports, like gamer type people, right? Like that's a super interesting segment, really passionate. If you're building tools for that group, like Discord initially, you know, how they were initially broken in the market, you know, that's super interesting, right? You look at something like Patreon, like the super passionate, like YouTube influencer kind of like community, yep. like that's super interesting too. And like that you can imagine, how that might extend beyond that initial foothold. But I think that's why the uh, starting out with a niche is so powerful is, you know, for that. Now, how do you find that role? You know, I think first and foremost is, I think in the early years, you really do have to deeply understand your customers qualitatively. You know, I think you and I, Casey, we spend so much time like thinking about the metrics and the quantitative part of things. But like when you're just getting your whole thing off the ground, I think there's a really interesting question of like, okay, well, if you're targeting, let's say this like the Overwatch community, you know, for games, like where do they hang out? Like what tools they use and being able to really map that out. And I think a really interesting way and then realizing it's like, oh yeah, okay, cool. Like I'm going to go after this discord channel as like, 
like my initial like thing. You know, I think yep. I think those are the kinds of ins- unique insights that makes uh, you know the process of getting to market effective. Yeah, it's funny working with a bunch of the companies in the Greylock portfolio. How many times my answer to their question is just talk to users, yes. uh, and you know that just kind of tells you what you need to know. And I think you know Silicon Valley for a while just like over rotated on like I look at the metrics and that tells me everything. And you know, in growth, it's a combination of qualitative research and the metrics. The metrics tells you what people are doing. They don't necessarily tell you why they're doing it, and they don't necessarily tell you what the people who aren't on your product are doing. And that might be the most important thing, especially in the early days. One tool I've tried to use is once you have, like, here's the type of person I'm going after, you can essentially build this map of their day. And like, here's where they go get coffee. Here's their commute. Here's the Pandora app that they're listening to. Here's where they go for lunch. And then just think about like, okay, now that I know exactly what this person does on a daily basis, where can I insert myself that they might be receptive to my message? It's a bit more of a traditional marketing standpoint, but I think really helps some of these early stage startups being like, is there some sort of cheap way that I can get in there and just talk to this person about what I'm up to and see if it actually resonates? And I found myself like using this traditional marketing tactic like over and over again. I don't even know what it's called, honestly, but it, I'm sure there is some fancy marketing name for it. And it's, it's really helped me like build a map of the distribution opportunities for these niche networks at the start, or even when you're trying to scale and trying to find some of those additional accelerants like we've talked about. Yeah, I, I like that. I think... Often people end up creating these like customer journeys that are very selfish to the company creating them, right? It's like all about how people are going to use my product and how are they going to become more engaged over time, right? You know, the reality, as you're saying, is that they're doing a lot of adjacent things, whether that's like getting a coffee. And then also very importantly, when it comes to channels and platforms and that kind of thing, is to really think about what are the adjacent products, you know, like if while they're using your product, you know, let's say, again, let's go back to a workplace example. What other tabs do they have open, right? right? Like, what are the other things that they're checking all the time? And, you know, you quickly figure out, it's like, oh, yeah, that's why calendar is important. That's why email is important. That's why, like, Google Docs can be important. Yep. You know, embedding all of these, like, kinds of ideas inside the product leads to the kinds of breakthrough insights that happen in social 10 years ago. When you look at like contact importers and you look at the way that like the initial Facebook apps were able to sort of like rapidly grow on the platform, they had these insights that not only did they go like, aha, like people are doing a bunch of this sharing and like we can use this hook. But in addition to that, they really built a whole workflow around that to make it, you know, really obvious why you should like what the customer value proposition was and engaging in it. And so so I think I think that's exactly the kind of thing you want to do as you're thinking about these other platforms. Yeah, uh, I totally agree. Moving on to another thing that I know you have a lot of experience with that I'd love to get your perspective on is kind of in between virality and paid acquisition, there's this concept of like the paid referral. And, you know, when I started working at Grubhub, we tried this and it just felt a bit too early. Like it just, it never really took off as a channel, but it felt like five years later, my Twitter feed was just a bunch of people sharing $5 off coupons for different startups. How are you seeing that strategy? How far is that on the the law of shitty click-through curve? Like, (laughs) is that still a viable thing for startups to be thinking about? Should you only think about it if you're a marketplace that makes transactions? Like, what are your overall thoughts there? This is sort of a evolution, I think, of where mobile virality has kind of taken us over time. We started out with 
a bunch of stuff happening with email contact importers and like just inviting people, a lot of the stuff that LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter and all those guys pioneered. And then all of a sudden it's turned out that within mobile, virality doesn't work as well, right? And there's a bunch of interesting reasons for that. One reason is that consumers are just more mature. They're more sensitive with their contact information. They sort of know that phone numbers is this thing that like, wow, if like a company has all my phone numbers, then they can do things with it that maybe I don't really want. Yeah, right? more That's, so than email. More more so than email, yeah, exactly. If a product delivers an SMS for you that you didn't intend, not only is that, are there, you know, legal issues, TCPA, you know, issues around that, but in addition to that, you know, that person's going to write you back right away and is like, what is this, right? Versus email is something because it's asynchronous. It's a little bit less sensitive. It's a little, it can be a little bit more FYI. And so what's happened, I think, is within, you know, mobile, all of a sudden viral growth has gotten more difficult. There's legal issues, as I mentioned. There's, you know, when you use like Twilio or Nexmo to try and deliver um, these invites, you have to be really careful about what what you do. You know, that's really important. So then the question is like, okay, well, where does that, demand go. And I think one, one of the things that people have been doing has been, as, as you mentioned, sort of this concept of like paid virality, which is um, incentivizing people using money to actually in, invite other folks. Yep. It's not just money. It can be things that are just like clearly valuable. That's an interesting distinction because, you know, famously, if you had to do a invite someone to Dropbox, and you uh, get some free like space as part of that. That that's not money, but it is this incentivized you know virality. It was very motivating for me. Totally, and so you know these ideas have been around for a long time, but I think they've taken even more prominence in a world where we have both a lot of the other channels I think being less effective. Yep. But then also on top of that, this emergence of a bunch of on-demand players, marketplaces, direct-to-consumer e-commerce. I think all of those things have caused, you know, this to be a whole area. And now consumers, I think, are very used to it. I want to give a couple, like, nuances about, like, folks that are thinking about incentivizing the virality. I think the first thing is that in a lot of cases, you really have to think about the kind of customer it's going to give you, right? Because the customer that you're going to get is going to be a customer that's incentivized by you know, money. And so from an, if you have a premium brand and all of a sudden you are you know, using incentivized referrals, then that also means that the, the audience that's going to come in from that, that channel is probably will perform worse for you yep. as, as a result. Right? So I think that's like, so when you're thinking about your LTV calculations, you probably need to discount it a little bit. right? We, we certainly saw that at Grubhub with people that came in through any type of promotion you're essentially selling them on getting a discount on food delivery That's instead right. of that ordering food online is better. That's right. Uh, so then the next time they want to use it, that value prop is actually gone unless you incentivize them again. And then you could get in this whole vicious cycle where you never actually make any money off exactly. the person. Uh, so I, I've certainly seen that borne out in the data. I don't think it's necessarily always true. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think, I think it's something to think about. I mean, interestingly enough, the complement to that if you operate a marketplace and let's say you're you're doing something for that's a marketplace where you can buy and sell you know goods yep. then if you do referrals on the sell side because they're money motivated and that's the whole point that they're on the platform that means your referral program will actually perform really well <laughs> yep. for that group right so so it's it's really interesting to think about like the psychology of using incentives and you know how what what kind of audience it it brings together so i think that's one part the second thing i'll say is that you really have to think about cannibalization and fraud being an issue as well. 
yep. right? Because all of a sudden you have this like money that's like part of this thing. And so you, you want to make sure that like, should you really do it off of, for example, do you want to give the inviter money when the invitee ends up signing up? Or do you want them to p- complete a series of real transactions, right? So thinking yep. about CPC versus CPA versus, you know, like that, that whole thing. And was like that actually two different people or did someone just invite themselves with a new email address? That's right. Or like, or maybe you're getting people that you would have gotten anyway. Right. Right. But what ends up happening is, you know, just as what e-commerce has often told us, like when you show that little promo promo code and then an empty text field, people will abandon cart <laughs> yep. and go online and search for like coupon, like whatever, and then like go back and fill that out. That the same thing ends up happening when you make that referral code a really, really prominent thing. Folks that are thinking about referrals is that the structure of your referral ends up being really important. I think we've seen currently a lot of kind of like symmetrical, you know, referral programs. So give $10, get $10. And I think that that is a very, very early take on what the future of referrals are going to look like. And Uber started that way. That's right. Exactly. That's right. And what we're going to see instead is we're going to see first, you know, a rebalancing. Should it be $10, $10, $10, right? That's one aspect of it. Maybe they should be different numbers. Yep. Maybe these numbers should be actually hyper-personalized. Maybe the structures themselves, you know, it's like, well, the the invitee maybe gets $10, but they have to order a certain number of things in order to qualify, right? Like yep. there's all this kind of personalization that I think means that it's still early and driving that efficiency is still there. So when we talk about kind of where is paid virality in the law of shitty clickers, I think it's actually pretty early. I think it's a, a channel where you can always decide to kind of like overpay in order to get it to work. Uh, right. But I think in reality, if you're going to compete on making that more efficient, I actually think there's there's still a lot of legs to it. Yeah. I think at, in Grubhub times, we were pretty anti-promotion um, in general because of what we saw with the lower lifetime values. But we were really excited about was if we could show that a promotion got someone to try something new that increased their lifetime value, we were then very bullish on trying those things out. So we did, Grubhub was the first food ordering app on the app store. Yep. So everyone was still ordering it via the web, but we saw that the people that did migrate to mobile doubled their lifetime value essentially. So we just gave everyone $10 off their first mobile order to migrate them over. And that was actually very successful. Whereas the generic, like get $5 to try Grubhub was a lot less successful because of a lot of those people just didn't come back and do it again. Part of constructing these referral programs, if you understand that $5 on Grubhub, I think everyone would know exactly what that means, right? That means like cheaper food, right? So that's like a currency that everyone's willing to do. And, you know, one more step away from that is something like free storage space, because you may think, well, do I actually need free storage space? Like, you know, what is that really? Yep. And then all the way to, you know, people do referral programs within mobile apps, like games, right? Yep. And let's say if you refer to somebody, then you'll get a thousand like gold coins for it. Like, what <laughs> yep. does that even mean? Right. Like the, you know, and then I've the invitee known. is like less excited about that. Yeah, right. Yeah. So I think, I think that's something else to think about is sort of like how, how concrete can you make your actual referral rewards? One thing I liked about what you said is that it's not that paid virality is really a separate thing. It's just really about understanding what is the motivation that you can create for someone to share. 
Sometimes that motivation is I'm going to make money. Sometimes that is the product's going to be better for me. Sometimes it's I need to get this project done and you are a critical path to doing that. And really stepping back and saying like, what is the right motivator to get someone to talk about this is, is the real high level abstracted thing you need to learn. And sometimes that answer is going to be you incentivize it, but sometimes the answer is going to be you don't need to at all. Yeah. Uh, you have the right incentive kind of already intrinsically uh, in the user. And I think that's like a critical thing for people to understand. That's right. And and, and I think you go to that first. Like I think yeah. if you if you can do it, you want to have organic virality first and foremost, right? So I think for the folks that are, um, you know, they have a new startup and they're building, uh, you know, kind of these utility tools, right? I think one of the very first things is, you know, if I were to invite a friend, like why, why does that make this a better product? Or why yep. do I do something and I share it with somebody else? Like, why is that better? I think you want to start with that as the fundamentals. In a lot of cases, you know, you have something that's so much a utility that it doesn't make sense to bring other people on. A lot of fintech companies end up using paid acquisition because it's really the only thing that makes sense. You know, it's a private piece of information um, that you're not going to like broadcast to a ton of people. So for example, Wealthfront, which is an automated investment service, they have a way that you can do referrals such that you can get more of your assets managed uh, for free. But it's not really something that's like, oh, well, you know, we let's compare Wealthfront statements. Like that's not going to happen, right? And so um, for them, it makes a lot more sense to go with a ton of content marketing, a ton of paid acquisition, and these sort of like paid referrals as the acquisition drivers for their product. Yeah, that makes sense. When you think about the virality or referral funnel, a lot of people that are trying this out, they just don't know if this can be a big thing for them or not. So as you think about that, like there's actually like a funnel there. There's like, can I get enough people to share Will people actually like open that email or text message or whatever? And then will people actually redeem it and become good users? What's the most important part of that funnel, I guess, would be my question. Like, is, the, is there one that you tend to focus on? Yeah. And like, if that's not working, don't bother. How have you thought about that in your career? Yeah, so I think what ends up happening is that every time you want to optimize your virality, obviously the first thing you're going to do is you're going to break that down into steps, right? Yep. And so I'm going to give you like the naive version and then I'm going to give you like how it actually works. Uh, so the naive version, what people used to talk about with viral loops is that you'd basically come in, a new user would come in, you'd get a certain percentage of them to invite their friends. They would send a certain number of invites. And then as you were saying, there's sort of this redemption rate of how many people then accept the invites yep. and sign up and then they repeat that process again. And so if you think about it, it's basically a bunch of percentages. Like if you start with, start out with a thousand users, that'll go down because you know only a certain percentage will invite, then only a certain percentage will um, give you their, their contact you know, address book access, yep. right? And, but the multiplier effect is basically what happens is when like, how many do they invite? That's the thing that kind of like makes the whole thing more a loop that, as opposed to a funnel that just yep. goes down. So back in the day, what would happen is you could actually build a viral loop that was like a single shot viral loop. Like just a new user comes in, does this thing, and then you can get a viral factor over one, right? Right. That was like an amazing time for extremely spammy, you know, email based viral loops. Oh yeah. That's a lot of where kind of the viral coefficient, which is kind of the ratio that measures the whole thing comes into effect. If you can get that viral coefficient to be over one, your viral factor to be over one, then all of a sudden you have this exponential growth. Yep. What has really happened though, is it turns out that that is not a great strategy to grow your your product because 
what ends up happening is you get a ton of acquisition and then people just fall out at the end and there's no churn, there's no engagement. Yeah. There's no retention. So what ends up happening in real life, I think, um, is that you never get a viral factor of one. In fact, what ends up happening is you come in and rather than doing a one-shot loop, instead you come in, you use the product, and then a certain set of those people will then invite a couple people, and then uh, and then you use the product some more, and then you invite another set of people, and then you keep going a little bit more, and then you invite more people, right? Mm. And so what that means is that all of a sudden, I think in the real world, retention ends up actually being one of the most important factors. Because if you have really great retention, what that means is you have a lot of shots on goal as far as like getting people to complete the viral loop. Now within the viral loop, what's the most important part? Because we're now in this more constrained environment where you're not inviting 200 people to your service, Instead, what ends up happening is that um, the acceptance rate of the invites is, is probably the most important part. So you want to see an acceptance rate that's like, let's say, over 10%, you mm-hmm. know, for people who like click through and sign up and then go from there. And then if you have great retention, you can eventually convert those people to, you know, more virality. But w- what ends up happening is that instead of viewing virality as a, um, you know, as this the exponential, you know, growth curve thing. Instead, what you should view it as is you have a really great product, really great retention, and then you have this virality that's like kind of kicking off a bunch of free organic users, and it amplifies the core of what you have as opposed to being like the driver, right? And, and so yeah. I think 10 years ago when, when everyone was doing like spammy Facebook apps and doing like spammy email stuff, you could actually have it literally be the foundational thing that you do. But these days, I think you have to be much more careful and sensitive about it. Yeah, I think you had a really great way of describing it, which is like retention creates the acquisition opportunities, whether it's through virality in this case, whether it's through the content that the retained users create, or whether it's through the money that those people actually make you, that gives you this opportunity to go bring back more users. Whereas, you know, when I think when we originally were learning about it, it was just like, actually don't have a product. I just have a viral loop. <laughs> and that created all these companies that went like straight up and then straight down right. as they ran out of the base of users to invite. And that is not what you want to be building, you know, as an entrepreneur or product manager. Yeah. You want to be building something that like adds long-term value. I think that's yeah. really smart. And, and when you look at um, a product like LinkedIn versus Instagram, right? What ends up happening is the more frequency you have, the less prominent you can make your viral call to actions, right? Yep. So in LinkedIn's case, because it's, you know, you basically use it for a couple specific use cases, it, you know, that is exactly the reason why almost every action you take on LinkedIn, somewhere down the line, they're like, by the way, do you want to import your address book? <laughs> yeah. Like, do you want to add people, right? Like, there's a, there's a really good reason for that. And that's, like, I think perfectly designed for the frequency they have. For something like Instagram, they can make it much more subtle. They can also tie it to, obviously, the Facebook platform. I mean, they make it really easy to invite your Facebook friends to Instagram. Like, yep. that's, that's clearly one of the big, big things that they're working on these days. But because they have this really high frequency, they don't have to be as hardcore about every action leading to that because they know they'll have more chances down the line. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've never really thought about that framework before. I think how I've thought about it is entrepreneurs, product managers come to me and they're like, I want to talk about like referrals and virality. And I'm like, well, a really good way that you can say if this is going to matter is you take the home screen and you just make it entirely focused on inviting someone. And then you see how many people take that action. And if not a lot of people take that action, 
the rest of the stuff probably isn't going to matter, right? <laughs> like you've made it as aggressive as possible and very few people are doing it. I think you have a uh, much more sophisticated plan <laughs> that we can Thank now you. share with uh, <laughs> Thank you. with yeah. everyone. I mean, I think virality is a catch-all umbrella term for a lot of things that you can potentially do in the product, right? Because if you think about the viral port, let's, let's use Dropbox as a good example of this, right? Yep. Within Dropbox, you could imagine they could have a straight up just like invite your friends to use Dropbox. They could also have a value exchange like get disk space, but also they can have something like share a folder with a colleague. And then that person has to install Dropbox in order to open that folder or like an individual file, or they could even get into specific things like, uh, you know, use case things such as, oh, if you want to view this secure document, you have to sign up in order to interact with it. Yep. Or you have you want to sign this thing, you want to do like an e-signature thing, like, okay, great, you have to then sign up to do it. You know, So virality ends up being a catch-all for basically anything that causes one user to generate another user as a result yep. of using the product. And so I think you know a lot of the creativity around viral growth is trying to find like the right angle such that people are actually excited to do this and see it as part of the value prop as instead of kind of a completely, you know, bland, generic, like share this content with friends or like invite your friends. Like I think those, especially because we're in a world where a lot of products have done that now, I think consumers are just immunized against it. Like they just, they're, they're just going to auto skip, you know, those kinds of flows. Yeah, I completely agree. So I want to shift back to paid acquisition a bit. You made a really good point that like paid can be that starter engine. And that's not just theoretical. I think more and more of the companies that we're working with, we're seeing that, right? That they're just starting with paid, like some even without a business model or just paying to acquire users. I would love to hear about like some of the trends in general that you're seeing with paid acquisition at startups and you know growing companies and what you think is most interesting. What you're seeing with paid acquisition is that obviously there's the Google Facebook duopoly, yep. right? But one of the things that they've done that's awesome is that the amount of kind of like targeting options and the amount of inventory they have makes it really easy. So it used to be with advertising that you actually had to, you know, deal with humans, you know, when you're buying ads. It's very different now. We're obviously all self-serving and we use APIs now, which is great. Back in the day, if you wanted to actually buy ads on any of these media properties, you had to actually call up a person and you would create a um, an RFP, a request for proposal that would basically say, hey, I'm looking to buy, you know, a million impressions or a million clicks or whatever. And can you please write me back and propose how that's actually going to you know, work? And so you would do that with like a whole bunch of different media properties, very time intensive. It looked like a, basically each thing was like a one off enterprise deal. As opposed to, you know, these days, it's amazing that you can just like pull out your credit card and in, you know, 10 minutes, get a campaign running on Facebook and Google that's super targeted and awesome. Basically, every startup should allocate a little bit of money towards paid paid marketing mm-hmm. just to basically like have that as a channel going. It could be a hundred bucks a day. It could be, right. you know, a really small amount just to start iterating with it. I think that's really great. The self-serve aspect of it means that you can actually learn important product things where you can, you know, try different kinds of ads and headlines and then expose people to different kinds of landing pages and really learn a ton about, you know, the viability of your product that way and the interest level. I think that's awesome. Within certain segments, like if you're going to talk about, for example, on-demand, you know, sort of labor as part of it, right? Supply side, like drivers and couriers and that kind of thing. Like there's pretty well-established benchmarks at scale for how much 
that sign up is going to cost you. And so you kind of like know ahead of time that like, hey, if I keep optimizing things, I'm going to be able to get to that. You know, same with like a B2B, like a workplace, um, like email, right? Yeah, that's a really good point. I remember, you know, when I started at, at Grubhub, they had, you know, some paid acquisition running and it wasn't working particularly well. And, and I just told, you know, Matt, our CEO, it's like, I'm going to try these five channels and I'm going to spend a month trying to optimize them. And I know what our target CPA is for our, our payback period. And I'm not going to hit any of those payback periods in the first month, but there's going to be some where I'm like 100x away and there's going to be some where I'm maybe like triple away. And what I'm going to do is I'm just turn off the ones where I'm like 100x away. Yep. And I'm pretty sure I can optimize the ones where I'm like 3x where I need to be down over more period of time. And that that ended up being true. But I think for people just starting out with paid acquisition, a lot of times they're just like, I'm not sure what I should be paying. Here's what I'm paying now. Can I get it down 10x? Can I get it down 100x? They just don't know. And I think certainly one of those steps is kind of like, you have to really aggressively try all those targeting options and figure out which ones work for your product and if those are going to be scalable enough to actually right. go get real users. And there isn't just a really well-defined playbook on like, here's how that process goes, early stage startup, go do it. And uh, maybe that should be could be a future blog post of yours. <laughs> uh, That's right. Yeah, no, th this area is so deep because there really is a learning curve, yes. right? And um, I think we're also at a point where it's not that hard to like put in your credit card and like have a couple different kinds of creative and have a couple kinds of campaigns going. Yep. But the next level of that, which I think is really interesting, is that if you know that you're going to be a product where paid marketing is going to be a major driver, right? Like basically if you're a direct-to-consumer, you know, e-commerce thing, yep. like you're going to live or die based on your, you know, ad spend efficiency. If you're a marketplace, it's going to be the same. You know, fintech, these things that are kind of like low frequency, you know, that picking up that intent is really important. Mm -hmm. You know, that becomes super key. And so what that means is not only is there a learning curve and just as like getting your team going on the first a uh, little bit of ad experiments. But then beyond that, there's all of a sudden, all of those self-serve platforms also have really deep APIs yep. that then allow you to do this optimization one level deeper, like purely programmatically on like which, you know, exactly what you're talking about, like which campaigns are going to be on, which ones are going to be off, like how long do you let them run before you turn them off? Yeah. How do you generate, you know, kind of all the permutations? That's really interesting, really exciting, because it means that you can actually invest and use software and software engineers yeah. to create a meaningful advantage in your in your ad buying process. Yeah, I'd say that's one of the most fascinating transitions I've seen in the last couple of years. And you mentioned it previously, which is, okay, paid acquisition is not just a marketing channel to get more users. It actually helps you build a better product by what you learn on the targeting and the messaging and all of that. And then now there's these deep integrations with Facebook, AdWords, et cetera, where you actually not only get product insight that the product and engineering team can leverage, you actually get product and engineering horsepower that can make these things work better. So you're seeing these things that were usually just in the purview of a marketer now being owned by product and engineering teams for the first time. And you know we've seen this at like Airbnb putting you know real engineering resources behind you know paid acquisition and Wish, which is you know one of those uh, e-commerce examples you mentioned where you know you can buy uh, very cheap goods from China and just have them ship to you for low cost if you're willing to wait a couple weeks. They don't have a marketing team. They just have an engineering team that spends a lot of time on their Facebook advertising because it's so critical for them. And I think you'll continue to see that happen, right? As paid becomes one of the primary channels that 
people uh, need to scale to win. Uh, it becomes more and more core to the DNA of the company, and therefore, you know, product engineering design are all thinking about it instead of just saying like, "Oh, that marketer off in the corner is going to take care of it for us." That's right. When you look at kind of one of the foundational ideas behind this whole new growth function that's emerged over the last couple of years, it is this thought that it's not like marketing and product are going to be able to be separate things. And it's yeah. like, okay, product, you guys build what you need to build and then marketing will like promote it. But instead it becomes like highly integrated and, you know, maybe it's a little bit like kind of software eats the world, right? But a lot of the functions that maybe you would have in previous years had dozens of kind of media buyers kind of sending emails, like getting on phones, trying to do all these partnerships yeah. can be things that are completely just purely executed by software. And I think that's a really exciting future because I think what it means is that you can really invest in it, as you were saying. But the other part is I think it allows startups to have real differentiation as well. Because if if then you're adopting some of these APIs or you find ways to buy these niches of, of segments on Facebook and Google ahead of everyone else, then uh, you know that can be a real advantage in, in your go-to-market. Yeah. I mean, you know, I've been doing paid acquisition for a very long time. I wouldn't want to go compete with Wish right now. <laughs> mm-hmm. They have a big competitive advantage in terms of what they've learned, how much they've done, how much they've tested that even, you know, me with a lot of expertise, like there's no hope that I could go and catch up with them very quickly. Like it's, that's a real sustainable advantage in a way that paid acquisition a lot of times historically is not. It's been like, oh, you're spending a dollar with Google? So am I. Big whoop, right? Now it's, it's not the same. They've actually made that core DNA at their company and they've built a huge head start on anyone that wants to compete with them at that level of scale. That's right. I want to go back to the Google Facebook duopoly. And there's a couple pivots on uh, this topic that I'd love your perspective on. So one is that that's just where all the advertising money is spent. I'm sure, you know, at Uber, at Pinterest, at, at all of these uh, companies that are doing paid acquisition is going through Google and Facebook. But that also means that companies are desperate to find anywhere else to spend money. <laughs> so there have been some emerging platforms in the past few years, Snapchat, Twitter, you know, Pinterest, Reddit, Quora, and LinkedIn for B2B. How do you think about you know evaluating those new channels as a startup? Is that a thing to kind of rush into and, and try to make work? Do you want to like sit back and make sure other people kind of test it out for you to learn? How do you approach that? We'll make two observations on this. First is when you're a startup, it doesn't really matter where the majority of ad dollars are spent, right? Because the reality is that you just should care about where your ad dollars are going to be yeah, spent. Yeah. And when you're small, you can spend them with anyone and get, you know, as, as long as there's results, that's exciting. In fact, if anything, what you would argue is that an early startup, you would almost rather have a few kind of proprietary partnerships that are getting you traffic, maybe from like other media properties that are in your space that aren't that competitive before you like go on to Facebook and Google. Those are the things that scale, but the, yeah. that's going to be the place where you're going to deal with obviously the most massive, you know, competition, right? Yep. So I think that's that that's one framing. The the second thing I would say about that is when you are a startup that kind of like doesn't know if it needs to use paid acquisition to compete, yep. then I think going with kind of the tried and true is perfectly fine. Right. But when you can see a really clear advantage, I mean, I think one example would be in e-commerce and you're like, oh, there's going to be this new Pinterest ad system that's going to come out or, you know, some new feature of this ad system. You should jump on that right away because that's like 
a really clear kind of product channel fit, like you know it's going to work, that's definitely worth exploring. Versus like if it's a completely random new thing, it's sort of like, well, maybe like let's let all the other folks who are professionally, you know, testing this stuff, see if it works first and then go from there. I think that's why a lot of times, you know, you're watching what the affiliate people do and what the lead gen people do because they're like in the business of trying out all these different things. In the early days of even the Facebook ad system, it was really clear that it was going to work because you could run even really small campaigns and you could watch other people run campaigns. Right. And it was like the traffic was good. And so you kind of knew that like, okay, this is going to be a thing. Yeah, it's interesting. There's this risk versus reward for these new channels, right? In that there aren't best practices that are available yet. Yet because of that, there isn't that much competition and you can maybe get a lot cheaper cost per click or you know cost per acquisition. And you have to kind of do the risk versus reward math That's right. for the different channels for, and for the different stage of company you're That's in. Right. If you're an early stage startup, there's so few things that you could spend time on like just the risk of distraction is really high if it doesn't pay out. Yet you're, you're sure if you're Uber, you're just willing to try any new thing at Susan that comes out because you have the resources, you have the money, That's right. and you're always looking for that competitive advantage. You know, one of the things to acknowledge is that for a lot of these platforms, when they first build their their ad systems, like they don't know whether or not it's going to work. That or was not. totally they don't, they true don't for Pinterest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And so um, I remember uh, this was like a long time ago, but I remember there was an interesting blog post about I think it was Joe Kraus, uh, you know, who had worked on Excite, which is like a pre Google yep. search engine, talked about how they had tons of search traffic. They just like didn't know how to monetize it, right? And yep. so back in the day, they would just like throw up a bunch of banner banner ads and they would be like, well, how, how do we actually monetize this traffic? Well, and it turned out that banner ads was not it. Yep. And it took obviously several iterations with Overture and then ultimately AdWords before they could make that happen. And I think, you know, for the Pinterests when, you know, they started things out or when Snap is, you know, they're continuing to iterate on things, I think it's going to take a while in, in some of these cases to actually figure out what's the right segment of advertisers and what's the right like format of advertising. Totally. I mean, I think Pinterest was a bit naive when it launched the ad platform at first. It's like, oh, people are here, you know, telling you what they're interested in. It's just going to be perfect for advertisers, right? And then we launch it and like the first few campaigns like didn't work super well. A lot of people at the company were just like crushed. And it's like, guys, like this is an iteration process. We're going to learn. We're going to build something better. And then we started finding, oh, some advertisers are having success. Why is that? Oh, what are they doing? What's the creative thing that they're trying? That's right. What is the targeting they're doing? And then eventually have built something, you know, that that's working a lot better, you know, now, you know, four years into it. Yeah. And I think what ad supported platforms tend to underestimate is how long it took the Google AdWords model to actually work. And I remember trying Facebook ads and being pitched for them in like 2007. And I was like, this is a joke because <laughs> I'm used to AdWords with you know yeah. all the features and That's the AdWords right. editor and all that stuff. And they That's just right. didn't have any of that, right? And then they just, you know, Facebook kept iterating. And then of course, you know, when Facebook was going public, it's like, oh, you don't have a mobile ad strategy. It turns out they figured that out just fine. It just took a little bit of time as an advertiser, you know, trying to leverage those platforms, you're figuring it out with them. That's and right. you might That's figure right. it out earlier than the platform does. And in that case, you can create a tremendous amount of value for yourself, you know, because you have very great cost per acquisition, very high lifetime value, all of those things. But the reverse can also be true in that like, you just get no value. And then you feel like you've wasted a bunch of time and money. So yeah. maybe one way to, to think about making this actionable would be that if there's a new platform that's coming out and it is really easy and self-serve, 
to just put in, to plug in like a hundred bucks a day. Yeah. That information is probably worth it. Yep. Because it might work just like right off the bat. Once you go beyond that, then there's a question of like, okay, how much do you really invest? And I think that there are these ad platforms, like I think, you know, Snaps video ads is one one example of this, where it's not quite clear. Yeah. And so I think because of that, you know, those things are much less interesting to a new startup. I think as a startup, you really have to do kind of self-serve, small budget, very performance marketing oriented, and like go after those as as new things that you try. You know, I think a very dangerous word in startups is the word awareness because you can justify doing a lot of things that you won't see in the data help you that in a lot of cases aren't helping you. What you know, both you and I try to echo in almost everything we do is that the most important thing to drive is product-driven growth. And that's the thing you should be focusing most of your time on. And then performance marketing can be this accelerant on top of that that functions very similar to product-driven growth. You can measure it, you can scale it. Brand is a super important thing but it's typically not a thing you're investing in until you feel like you're really revving on product-driven growth and performance marketing. And then it's an additional accelerant that maybe even creates more of a moat long-term. And in consumer, you really shouldn't be investing in brand-justified spend until you're a very large company and you're very secure. In B2B, you might do it a little bit earlier because the lifetime values are so much higher, but it's very dangerous to be like, oh, I'm just going to try Snapchat brand ads and you know, in two years, it's going to pay off. I'm not going to be able to measure it. Like that rarely works for startups. That's right. Yeah. I think there's the Y Combinator thing where they talk about how startups are default dead. Right. Right. And so once you get to a point where you're kind of like, okay, maybe this is actually going to work. Like this is awesome. (laughs) Then uh, very quickly after that, you can justify things that look more like brand spend because then you can sort of like amortize the cost of that over a long period because right. you're like, okay, well, you know, my company's probably going to be around for like the next 10 years. So now I can do things that have a longer ROI window than yep. like literally getting people to buy clicks. But I, I think there's a special time in your company when you're able to start thinking about stuff like that. I think that's much more like a series B, series C, like, you know, if you're going to think about that at all. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. One thing about paid acquisition I want to dig in on with you, because I know you've seen it, is kind of the irrationality You could call it irrationality. You could call it strategic advantage. Maybe smarter people than me will call it game theory about paid acquisition and competition in that you have people seem to be playing a different game. Like if you're a startup and you're trying to make your money back in four months and then Uber comes in to compete with you with their war chest, they don't necessarily have to have their payback period in four months. How are you seeing like the competitive dynamics play out in, in paid? Are you able to avoid the kind of direct one-to-one or just it's going to get there eventually and trying to figure out the advantage earlier is kind of who wins. How do you think about that? Especially in the world of direct-to-consumer like e-commerce, I think we've seen that in like a really big way kind of play out, um, you know, where the really naive way to just describe it at like a high level, what's really happening is you have a startup, they think that they have a certain LTV, Right. And so they can justify that because either they're doing a longer payback period, as you're saying, they might think like, oh, no, 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 we're going to get people onto this thing and then we're going to sell them other stuff. You know, that's like another point of view. Or maybe they have a really rosy point of view on what their churn looks like because the early cohorts were really good. But then they don't necessarily know that, by the way, like by the time that you wait out. 12 months or 24 months on a paid channel, that's going to be very different than the folks that you got organically in the first place, right? right? So you have all these kind of, I think, asymmetries. And then I think the the harmful asymmetry is the one that basically is 
I know that if I can show traction that I can go raise more money, <laughs> right? right? And it's just like land grab mode. And like, sometimes you have an investment community that's willing to go for that, yep. right? Like, I think we had this whole phase of all the monthly subscription boxes. Like you had one work, so everyone was like, <laughs> let's try to build the, you know, Birchbox for X, right. right? Obviously, once Uber got started, everyone was like, all right, let's do Uber for X. And we just sort of know that the unit economics aren't going to quite work out at the beginning, but we're going to like invest into it. Yep. But I think as a, a more mature unit economic positive player in the market, that like looks really crazy to you, right? Because right. you're basically <laughs> like, oh my God, like all these people, like they're pouring all this money in and, you know, it can, and, and, the, and the dollar amounts that they're spending don't work for us in our model. So it's hard to match. Right. But also just that they have maybe just a different business than yours, or they have a different strategy than what you're really going for. Yeah. I think this was really fascinating to watch in the food delivery space in the last five years. So, you know, when I joined Grubhub, there were about four competitors around the same size, all with essentially the same business model, right? Which is like restaurants that already deliver food. We're going to match them to people ordering food. In Grubhub, we were able to uh, have some strategic advantages with our supply side, with our brand. Our CPA was a lot lower than our competitors on things like AdWords. And we were you know, really proud of that. Nowadays, if I saw a CPA a lot lower than my competitors, it might actually make me scared. Uh, <laughs> and I think that that kind of happened once I left Grubhub and you know, kept in touch with the team is, you know, after Grubhub went public, all these delivery startups came out, you know, the, the DoorDashes, the Postmates, the Caviars of the world. And, uh, you know, the person I was talking to that took over acquisition after I left, he was like, they're just spending so much money uh, so much more than could possibly have a positive you know, outcome for them. And I think he saw it as dumb money and that it'll wash out of the system eventually. And Grubhub just has to have a little bit longer payback period. I realize that we should probably define that payback period for those of you who don't do a lot of paid acquisition is if I spend 20 bucks to acquire a user, how long does it take me to make that 20 bucks back off of them in, in revenue? So Grubhub would target a, a six month payback period, which I think is pretty common for mid-stage startup, early stage startups that maybe don't have LTV data are going to try to make their money back on first transaction. And then, you know, now Grubhub with 10 years of LTV data can probably stretch that out to a year or potentially even longer just because it's, it's more predictable. So Grubhub was like, oh, is this dumb money? And I think if you're DoorDash or Postmates during that time, you're like, I just need to provide liquidity and I'm willing to pay any amount of money to make sure that my supply gets demand and they stay on the platform. Because like, I'm paying for these drivers. I paid to acquire restaurants. So the fact that I'm spending 5X what Grubhub is spending on a consumer, like I don't care, like the business doesn't work if I don't get that spend. And that was an initial change during the business model. And then Uber Eats came in and that's even scarier because you know Uber has these competitive advantages. It's not that they're being irrational. So they, have, they actually have cheaper cost of capital Right, And it's weird to think that a private company would have cheaper cost of capital than a public company. But if Grubhub basically doesn't show profit growth, their valuation drops, right? And then Uber amplifies their core business, right? So that's just a huge advantage that Grubhub doesn't have. And I think it's important that if you're getting into this game that you understand the games that all the competitors are playing. And in the case of Grubhub, like the early game when I worked it, it was easy to understand. Everyone's playing the same game. And all of a sudden, you know, Postmates and DoorDash are playing a different game and Uber Eats is playing a different game. And it it may change the ability for you to compete on some of these channels. Yeah, that's right. The on-demand model is 
with the two-sided marketplace and with multiple product lines is really different than like a standalone like food business, right? Yep. And so if you're Uber, you have a pretty different set of variables that you're playing with because as you mentioned, you know, after somebody comes in through Eats, that means that we potentially can upsell them to, you know, more trips, right? Or vice versa, yep. right? Or, you know, the other point of view is like, well, maybe we get a ton of like organic Eats users off of people who are riding with us. And so that what that means is that, you know, that's a really low cost of customer acquisition. Yep. And then the ad spend that we get is like a different set. And then the blended amount is still actually looks really healthy, right? right. That might be another way to view it, right? And so I think there's there's a lot of different points of view that you can take on this stuff that makes it an asymmetrical comparison. Yep. And it makes it much harder to just say, oh yeah, these dollars that are being spent are smart or dumb. Like they're just different, yep. you know, in, in the marketplace. Yeah, which I think, you know, raises a point that you wrote in your blog post about uh, growth getting harder is that a real strategic advantage is investing in your business model earlier to figure out your LTV earlier. And that can allow you to justify a lot of things that, you know, companies that don't really know how much they're making, they just can't do. So I'd love to hear kind of if you have any thoughts on if you're a startup and you want to do that, what are the best practices? Is it just you have a totally different type of business you start, you start B2B, you don't worry about consumer. Like, how do you think yeah. about that? So if you look at this problem from the kind of growth first kind of lens, right? Yep. What you're gonna quickly realize is that in order to compete with other people for the same audience, you're gonna need some kind of structural advantage in the amount that you're able to pay. That's one version, right? So yep. you're able to pay more than others. And we'll talk about what things could lead to that. The other version as well is if you're able to utilize certain APIs and channels within these big platforms in a way that maybe others aren't, right? Yep. So in the first version, you know, the structural thing is that like, I think that is why for a long time, people were super excited about the subscription, you know, boxes, because what ends up happening is you have this like longer LTV period um, that you're able to deal with. And so then you could initially in a world where most people weren't doing subscription, if you came in and said, oh, you, you're doing X dollars um, selling razors on the internet. Well, if I have a subscription version, I'm able to then pull forward, you know, potentially a year or two years of LTV yeah. and completely just crush you in terms of bidding and like really do that. So I think that's like one version and I think we can, you know, subscriptions clearly one thing, the other version would be you are able to cross sell more effectively. If you look at all these like travel companies, a lot of what the uh, folks within travel do is they're often cross-selling all of the adjacent services. They're making their money on all the other services. Rental cars. Rental cars, like all that stuff, right? Yep. Um, so if you can come up with like kind of a unique insight like that, you can, you know, go. Now, the problem is a lot of times they're less proprietary than you think. And so then over time, you know, it sort of washes out. Everybody can build a subscription version of what you're doing and it gets, yep. it gets difficult. But hopefully by then... Other effects like brand, which maybe gives you higher conversion rates, maybe you figure out your referral program, maybe you figure out some of these other channels, they can help create your version of the your growth moat, right? It's yep. based on that. Then I think the, the, the other piece is if you can go after traffic or use APIs in a way that maybe others aren't, you know, and I'll use a cautionary tale for this, the story of Teespring, which yep. obviously early on, you know, they were basically creating like a lot of custom t-shirts and they did a lot of really clever things on Facebook in particular around taking, um, you know, users like topics that they had liked, pages that they had liked and where they went to school and all that stuff and advertising. And it would be like this hyper-personalized thing. Yeah. Really, really cool, right? 
and so so that kind of thing can give you a huge advantage. I think the cautionary tale in their case was that this was basically only offered on the Facebook platform. And once that stopped working, then there weren't a ton of other channels to yep. go to after that. Yeah. It's interesting to hear you talk about structural advantage. And then in travel, like I think we've all heard about the booking.com story, which is they just got way better at conversion rate optimization than all of their competitors. And that allowed them to bid more aggressively on AdWords and other channels That's because right. they could actually close the deal others couldn't. That's and right. that has been a key driver in Priceline's stock. If you were one of these online travel agencies, OTAs, you would actually do this arbitrage. You would like go to the hotels, these mega hotels, Mm -hmm. and you would say, hey, I will pre-buy a bunch of your inventory, Mm -hmm. and then I will sell that to my audience and, um, you know, and then and then take money on the market. And the hotels love this, of course, because they basically get this kind of like pre-booking, you know, inventory that's already locked down. It helps them create some stability in their revenue, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, And that was great. When booking came along, they basically said, okay, well, we're not going to do that. We're just going to be a leads business. The margins are going to be worse, but and we're just going to send leads to these hotels. And they, they're not going to do the arbitrage game, right? And that did a couple things like that were pretty interesting. One was that it meant that you all of a sudden when you're coming into booking like they would collect your you know your credit card but it was all actually kind of like optional like because they didn't really need you to buy yep. the thing it was just a lead they obviously pioneered a bunch of those like kind of fun techniques where it's like five other people are looking at your listing yep. and they're like oh no I better like transact that's a great example of a structural kind of um, asymmetric advantage because if you're Expedia in that case you actually don't want to convert your entire business to a low end lead gen thing yeah but then Booking's able to not only have lower friction in the funnel, but they also can offer a wider variety of hotels because yep. they don't need to just do these deals where they like buy inventory off of Hilton. They can also like do lead gen for like really unique, quirky bed and breakfast kind of things. Because yep. like those guys will buy, you know, leads as well. So it became a larger volume, lower margin business. And I think that's the the true version of a structural advantage because yep. It's so structural that your competitors don't actually want to copy you yep. until it really works. But it gives you a um, advantage in how much you can spend and what kinds of terms that you can go for. Because all of a sudden you can go for like tail terms. You can advertise a different kind of hotel inventory. Um, so I think that's a really interesting use case. Um, okay. And I think that's a really interesting thing if you're a startup and you're thinking about your bigger competitors and where they're spending their money you obviously want to try the same channels and the same things as them just to get the benchmark. But I think you also really want to think about like, well, what are the things that they don't want to do or they're not willing to do because it doesn't really match their business model and really articulate the growth strategy around that. Yeah. I mean, there's so many good things about what they did that are still working for them like 15 years later. It's, It's a really great story. I want to shift from a bunch of things people should do to some things people should avoid with paid acquisition. Um, (laughs) You talked about Teespring, maybe a little bit over-reliant on one tactic. That was something that Facebook wasn't going to necessarily continue to offer. I think there are lots of other examples of, you know, paid acquisition kind of gone wrong. Are there any that kind of come to mind for you that you'd want to like caution the audience? Don't make this mistake and it's really clear how not to. I think the big thing is paid acquisition is something where it's easy to get addicted. Yeah. Right. You buy a little bit. You're kind of like, okay, cool. This is working. Like my revenue numbers are going, you know, like it's easy to get addicted and to suddenly start saying, well, you know, I'm only getting to this scale. So I don't want to have a bad quarter. So I'm going to like push the LTV window, you know, Mm. as you were saying, your payback period, you know, instead of being six months, 
you're going to say, well, what if we made it like nine months or 12 months? And then you're at 12 months and you're like, well, maybe like a little bit more. And like, it's very tempting to do that. Yeah. It's easier to make that kind of a decision than it is to make the decision to put a team of people to like optimize your whole product. What ends up happening is because it's the easier decision, it's very tempting to like go for that. So I think that's one one aspect. I think the second part is it's easy to also become short-term about it where there are just so many examples of direct-to-consumer e-commerce companies, even actually going back to, um, you know, the Living Social and Groupon days, right? Yep. Like these are all stories of basically paid marketing arbitrages that exist for a year and then go away. And yep. then companies like collapse, like hundreds of people lose their jobs in many cases because of these kinds of decisions, right? And so one of the points is that really understand where paid marketing is in your um, set of levers, right? Is it really a durable proprietary thing that you're going to be able to use over a long period of time? Or is it just like this wedge into the ecosystem, either, you know, early on in your startup in order to get the initial traction yep. or maybe as a complement to your other stuff, but really understand like where you're going to be able to compete on, you know, acquisition and really like be intellectually honest about where that is. I think that's really hard. Yeah, I think there are some or a few good case studies on where that's that's kind of gone wrong. That's right. One that I'd like to bring up is kind of what we're seeing played out with Blue Apron right now. And I think a difference that I don't think is well understood with companies that use paid acquisition is whether your core business model has a network effect to it or not and how that impacts paid acquisition. So, you know, Grubhub, Uber Eats, these are examples of paid acquisition, but there's a core uh, cross-site network effect where, you know, you have an early user that orders a lot of delivery, you go acquire them, they order from restaurants, you're able to use people like that to go acquire more restaurants, which then makes the product interesting on the demand side for people who aren't as hardcore uh, delivery users that end up ordering just as much as that initial person because of the, the additional variety. So the cross-side network effects allows both the supply side and the demand side to expand over time and maintain really healthy lifetime values. And then compare that with something that on the surface seems like a core substitute, like a like a, a Blue Apron plated these uh, food delivery subscription businesses. The difference between those two products is that Blue Apron doesn't get better as more people use it. So Blue Apron is a classic case of they found these core customers that worked really well, they retained really well, therefore they had a high lifetime value, and then they could acquire them even at cost that maybe Grubhub or Uber Eats couldn't afford, right? But then they just kind of ran out of those users, and then they have to expand to people that aren't as qualified for the service, which means they're not going to have as good a retention, they're going to have lower lifetime value, they're going to churn out at a higher rate, which then means they need to go replace those people with new people who are even less qualified over time. So you have this trend of every user you acquire is worse than the last person you acquired. And then it, it kind of doubles in that they get more expensive to acquire even though they're worse, which means you need to go to more and more fringe channels. So it just adds complexity, it adds cost, and it increases churn. And you run into this situation where you run out of the market um, eventually. So if you look at the you know, Blue Apron subscription subscribers curve, it's a, a pretty exponential curve and now it's actually gone negative. Mm. And so if you don't have network effects tied to your paid acquisition, it's not the end of your business. But if you're modeling it as if you do, you will run into That's some right. trouble, right? So Stitch Fix, I would say, it's very unclear if they really have a network effect. I'd say they probably are claiming they have a data network effect. So as they yep. get more users, they get better about uh, picking items. But 
what did they do? They grew very organically. Um, they didn't spend a lot of money on paid acquisition. They used Pinterest as an organic channel. Um, they used referrals as an organic channel. So they were able to really maintain a, a, a low cost and they were able to have an innovation in terms of how much people returned because you got a cheaper rate if you retained all the clothes that they uh, shipped to you. So unlike a trunk club where your know, returns were like 50% of a box, they had very low returns as statistics. So they innovated on the model and kept these more organic growth levers instead of just relying on paid as a channel the way that Blue Apron did. And you know, so far their IPO appears to be a lot more successful than Blue Apron. So That's right. thinking about all those structural issues as well as you know how the network effects come into play and are you really creating a sustainable loop or not is super important. And I imagine it's very painful working at Blue Apron right now uh, and just kind of learning that live while the market learns it with you. Look, if you don't have a structural advantage on this stuff, it's very hard to like add it in later. One last thing I want to talk about with paid is we've talked about a lot of examples where there's transactions involved. Certainly, you know, our experiences are in marketplaces. What about when it's not a transactional business? So do you feel like paid acquisition can be a real lever for those styles of businesses? Or do you need to think about something else? How do you think about it? Yeah. So I think when it comes to different kinds of acquisition channels is which things are loops that sort of can scale and sort of like self-perpetuate and which things are kind of these linear channels that are like, they're nice to have, but you can't really scale them. So the example of the former would be like, content can be both a loop and a channel, but like if you wanted to create one as a loop, you would use probably user-generated content or you would need something like what, you know, Zillow and like, uh, you know, Redfin does where they create just a massive number of landing pages. But the whole idea is like, how does each user who comes into like Yelp, for instance, you know, there's a certain percentage chance that they're going to sign up as a Yelp user and ultimately create more content and which Google will then index and like the whole flywheel will turn. And so that's an example of something as a loop. So I think the point of this is that if you have a main thesis and a main loop uh, around acquisition and how your, your product works, and hopefully over time you can add multiple, like LinkedIn started with invite virality and they've you know added more SEO and now yep. they've added even more stuff. What happens is you can use paid as an accelerant for that, right? Yep. So you know maybe early on you don't have a lot of content or maybe early on you don't have enough users to make a referral program work. But what you can do is you can like, you know, sort of juice some of that stuff and like get that content, you know, created in the first place. That's one, you know, great place to use it. Then the second place, as we've been talking about, is that a lot of these products end up being you know, networks of some kind, yep. right? Whether that's something like a GitHub where people come together to like share projects and files, or it's a completely private thing, like Dropbox is a completely private, you know, network and it's in the workplace, et cetera. What ends up happening is that a lot of times you need some kind of critical mass in order to get the whole thing going. Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine using paid marketing. I've heard that there's, you know, many of these growth teams, um, for example, at Facebook, where they typically don't use paid marketing, they may use it in specific cases where they're trying to juice growth within a per- particular geography, yep. you know, as, as, as a for instance. Yeah, I right? think they're actively using it in India, Indonesia, Nigeria, stuff like that exactly. to make sure they get the base. That's right, exactly. And if your thing has network effects and there's a bootstrapping period, then that's awesome for that. And, you know, that applies to marketplaces, of course, that applies yep. to, you know, user-generated content things. It can apply to like a lot of different you know, aspects. So I think, you know, you want to make sure that in those cases, though, that um, where you're spending the money and how you're spending it is very careful, right? Like that works well in especially, you know, we we were just talking about a couple of these like Southeast Asian countries. 
a medium sized budget can go a long way right within that and that's awesome right because then you can really like juice the thing now if you're trying to build you know something that is for the developer community or something that's for the i don't know design community it's going to be really expensive and really hard to bootstrap that using paid acquisition so for something that's more narrow like that especially if you're targeting like the us geo mm. plus you know something that's like much more expensive all of a sudden you know like your acquisition is going to look more like a couple hundred dollars per activated signed up us like professional worker and so then all of a sudden you're like okay this is actually going to be like kind of hard to do yeah and uh you know that's then becomes not not a great kind of bootstrapping solution yeah, I agree. So I think there's kind of bootstrapping and as well as kind of the acceleration. So, and I think at Pinterest, like we traditionally have grown organically, right? But it was totally worth it to kind of pay to get the first users in Japan or something like that to get people who would contribute content. And then also what we found is once that content loop is working, you know, that the content gets distributed to Google or Facebook, you could actually pay some money to boost that content even more on Facebook. And especially in international countries like that return was absolutely amazing and, and well worth it. You would make your money back very quickly. So I think, you know, BuzzFeed kind of pioneered this. We're going to create awesome content and then we're going to actually spend money to push it out to get the initial viral loops going on that content and then kind of let it play out from there. And the level that they've scaled that over time is, is pretty immense and kind of Upworthy was kind of another one that was really well known for that. And I think we're totally seeing that be a viable channel. I mean, you know, the jury's out on whether how amazing those content businesses are going to be, but like they've been able to scale and grow and I think do some of that pretty profitably. And so you can't just think about like, oh, I'm a content business, therefore I can't spend any money. Like uh, you might need to think a little bit smarter about it, but using to bootstrap a kind of viral growth of a particular article or to build the initial network, I think makes a ton of sense. Yep. Cool. One scary element that I, I want to talk about is there's kind of this other element of the Facebook Google duopoly is kind of them as the, the boogeyman that is going to eventually just compete with you if you're successful, especially if they're seeing you continue to spend more money on their platforms and grow really fast. You know, if you're in a different company and I'm sure Uber has had, you know, this, the fear of kind of Google competing with them and, and whatnot. How do you think about like that does that worry you? Are there things you should do to avoid that? Like, how do you think about that as a startup? There's been absolutely that narrative that we're in a space now where, oh, even if you're if you do well on consumer, you know, these these companies will kind of chase you down and they'll yep. they'll they'll clone you and they'll copy you. And the reference point I think that everybody talks about is Snap, right? Like Facebook and Snap and how aggressively now Snap stories are now integrated inside of you know, Instagram and like Facebook itself and WhatsApp. And, you know, now recently I just saw in some news that they're going to allow Instagram stories to be cross-posted to WhatsApp. So mm -hmm. that's another leverage point kind of within the ecosystem. It's hard to, for me to look at that and think it's a wildly compelling case because I think it's it's vastly oversimplified and and disregards the fact that Yes, like that is happening and like Instagram looks like is making a dent in Snap. But we also have to remember that before that, you know, Facebook had like poke, they had um, slingshot, you know, slingshot. Yeah, they had paper. They had all these like labs things and like none of them worked. And the, the only thing that ended up working in a big way ended up being taking one of their primary properties and integrating, you know, Snap's feature set deeply enough that like 
you know, it was so obvious, like, and, and so that's a, becomes a huge product bet. I think that's totally fine, but that is a big gun with very few bullets, you know, right. it has like two bullets in it. Right. And they just shot one. The way I look at that is it's actually an awesome time for innovation. If you have a lot of like consumer startups that are getting scared off from it, then the, the folks that are actually in the business with a really unique insight and unique value prop, actually, it's going to be less competitive. It'll probably be a good time to start a company. Right. Yeah. I think when you look at all the companies Facebook and Google have tried to compete with over the last five years and what their successes look like, I think it boils down a lot to has the company they've tried to compete with really understood their own loops and had that strategic advantage or not? And you know, when we think of Snap, we don't think of it as a company that really understood and tuned its viral loops and built moats around its users. It's more of a thing that just blew up, yeah. right? And whereas you look at other things that Facebook and Google have tried to compete with that have really had more built out an understanding of what makes their ecosystem unique and what their loops are, I think... Facebook and Google just haven't been as successful. Like Facebook recently um, competed with GoFundMe, which is one of our portfolio companies. Um, and I think GoFundMe is doing just fine. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like it's, you know, across 5 billion GMV uh, because GoFundMe has a core loop that continues to work. And they've built that mind share that this is the way that you, you know, raise money for causes. You know, at Pinterest, we kind of faced competitive pressure from both Google and Facebook over the years, you know, uh, Google famously copied a lot of guided search functionality uh, into image search. And, you know, Facebook and Instagram have built save buttons. They've built collection features. They copied a lot of the Pinterest core product. And Pinterest continues to grow uh, fairly aggressively. It just crossed, you know, uh, 200 million monthly active users. But that's because Pinterest understands its acquisition loops. It understands its core engagement loops. And, these salvos from these other companies, it's hard for them to break these existing loops. But if the loops don't exist or you don't have ways for them to drive you know, additional users to get introduced to the loop, I think you're much more risky proposition of if Google or Facebook start to care, they can start to take that stuff away. I really love your assessment of kind of like the gun with a couple bullets. Uh, when you think about how much work it took just to take one company down as the Facebook behemoth, yeah, how many times are they going to put that level of effort into you know killing your little startup, it's, it's unlikely. <laughs> the other way you could talk about Snap is you could say, hey, you know these companies will probably let you grow really fast, become a public company, make yourself very wealthy, and then they'll chase you down. Right? For most entrepreneurs, getting to that stage is already hard enough, much less worrying about like the long term ramifications. I think if you're an entrepreneur and you got to go public as a fifteen billion dollar company, you're like, yeah, I'm okay. That's, yeah, exactly. That's that's fine. <laughs> fine. If if now it's going to be hard as a public right. company, and I think this story gets told quite a lot. Like even when you're talking about like Google, and I mean, how many years, um, you know, has it been told that like Google Drive is going to kill Dropbox, and yet that's you know not happened, right? And it's like, yeah. it, I think I think one of the things that people undervalue is that you know network effects are just I think you know, categorically undervalued. It is just really yep. hard once you've built a network that is like thriving and you have decent retention rates and all that other stuff, you know, it'll just keep going and going and going. And and maybe what may happen is that 
one of the bigger companies, if they execute well enough, they may be able to cap some of the upside. You know, I think that's probably more the danger, but it's really hard to get entire networks of people to switch from one platform to the other. Yeah, it's not as if Snap has lost all their users. It's really more that they've lost their ability to acquire new users at an aggressive clip. That's right. right? Uh, so I think it's a really important point, and, and Dropbox is a really great example. And I think Slack will be another interesting test of all of this as like everybody sort of views you know, enterprise chat as like a feature of like all the things that suites, you know, need to yep. provide. So Google Suite and obviously Microsoft and, and all, all their product offerings. But I think based on this theory, what you would say is that actually probably Slack will continue to really continue to crush it on their existing user base. And then the question is maybe the attrition from some of these other products into Slack will slow over time. And I think that's the real risk. I think one of the yep. one of the most interesting moves I think that um, you know Facebook's done is they have, you know, with with regard to the whole Snap thing, is that they are more aggressively expanding the whole like stories concept and all those things into the developing market because that's where, you know, it's a lot of where they have expertise. Like the fact that, you know, some of these features are now part of WhatsApp will make it hard for Snap to once they get their act together around an- low-end Android um, and they're into those markets, I think it'll still be really hard because then it's all of a sudden it's like, oh, wow, th- there's actually an incumbent and yep. they're the challenger brand as opposed to the other way around. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, if you want to learn more about Snap and their user growth challenges, we had a great podcast with Julie Zoe a while back talking about that in more depth. Well, thanks again, Andrew, for taking the time. I think we learned a lot today. You know, we talked a lot about the law of shitty click-throughs and how, you know, each of these channels has a lifetime in terms of how they're going to work and, you know, times where they're going to be emerging and really easy. And then they're going to have decay periods where they get harder. And that, I think, really drives a lot of the decisions that you need to be thinking about in terms of how you're going to grow your company. You know, I think we talked a lot about where virality is on that curve in, in different capacities. So in that, it's not necessarily about, you know, am I trying to get to invite people or am I trying to give people money? It's about really understanding the framework of what's going to motivate people uh, to talk to others about this product and then tuning a program around that and how the bar for that has gotten really high for consumer apps because there's just been so many programs that have tuned this that people are starting to tune it out on the sharing side and on the redemption side. But in B2B, that's actually alive and well and becoming a more emerging channel to replace some of the early enterprise sales that those startups used to do, which is very exciting. Another thing that I think we learned a lot about was how to think about paid acquisition. Should it be the core of uh, how you grow your business or should it really just be an accelerant that's built on top of a more core loop? And also, if you're really going to go after paid acquisition, what's your structural advantage versus how you're going to you know, beat the competition? Like, what are the things you're going to be able to do that separate yourself for the short term and the long term? You know, we talked about in food delivery, the advantages that, you know, Uber has, you know, versus some of the incumbents and in travel, how booking.com really was able to separate itself on multiple advantages. You really need to think about these things to be successful in the long term for paid acquisition. So I hope this was really helpful to you as you're thinking about growing your business. Don't dismay. Growth is getting harder, but it's not that growth is impossible. You just need to think a little bit more strategically about how to make it work for you.